and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch.com. Come on by, check us out, kick the tires, um, sacrifice 50 bulls to ball, do what you like. Um, so it's Friday. It's been a pretty relentless few weeks, and um, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on that I still can't talk about publicly, but... Um, You'll know some of it when you see it, when it does become public, and um, and then we'll talk about it here. Um, one thing that I am allowed, I checked, because I didn't want to violate anything. Um, one thing I am allowed to say to the world is, you know, I was in Texas earlier this week for a speech. Um, pretty much every year I give a speech at Old Parkland in, in Dallas, and it's like one of the more important things I do all year, and... Crowdhammer, Charles Crowdhammer used to give the speech and now I do it, which is, you know, those are massive shoes to fill and it's a big deal. And I have lots of friends who show up and it's, it's, it's not quite public, but it's not quite private. It's, it's a thing anyway. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that talk in a second, but, uh, it turned out that while I was out there, um, I got a chance to have coffee, uh, with president Bush, which was great. And we chatted about a bunch of things. Um, I cannot, um, uh, you know, the, the general, I mean, it's not like this is all secret clandestine stuff or anything, but it was supposed, it wasn't, I wasn't being invited as a reporter or as a journalist to cover anything. I was invited to have a conversation. And so I had a conversation. I didn't take any notes and I didn't plan on writing anything about it, but, um, it was interesting. It was great. He's, you know, you can have your disagreements with Bush, but I think it's pretty clear he's a friendly, decent guy, and he's funny, and it was a it was a good time. Um, you know, but if all of a sudden you get, you know, if you find out that, um, um, you know, I'm going to be a, you know, the new head of some giant Fortune 50 company, that has nothing to do with it. So anyway, um. I was out there in Dallas. I really like going to um, um, Dallas because I, I just have a bunch of people I really like and um, enjoy spending time with out there. And so I gave this talk, and I this this is a problem. It's like the the two most important speeches in a given. Let me put it this way: the two most important speeches that I know about well ahead of time in any given year are one: this one I do at um, AI's World Forum. Um, which I don't do every time, which sometimes is a bummer. Um, but I've done most years and, um, and the other one is this one I do in, in Dallas. And the problem is when you give a speech to largely the same audience every year, you, first of all, you can't keep using the same old jokes. So, you know, I can't now do the whole, um, you know, I, if I, if I knew they were going to give me a podium, I wouldn't have worn pants thing, um, which some people believe is the cause was the spark that led to, uh, Donald Trump saying, I didn't know how to buy pants. I don't think that's right. Um, but anyway, you can't use the same jokes and you can't talk about the same things. And if, if, if you know much about like giving, you know, speeches is one of the things you do is you work on a, a given speech, either about a book or a topic or the, what's going on in Washington. And you, 
and particularly if 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 part of your comparative advantage is you tell jokes um you work on the jokes you know it's it's not a comedy routine but it's you know that's one of the one of the things that i i do that you know i'm i'm billed as being able to do is 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 be able to entertain an audience and um and there's nothing more painful to me than you telling the same jokes to the same people over and over again um unless it's my daughter then i don't mind because i'm a dad but uh for normal audiences it's a little different and so it always makes me nervous because i have to come up with sort of a new thing to talk about every year for these kinds of things and it's supposed to be you know both you know highbrow and intellectual but also funny and you know my my old line about this was because ai puts me in a situation all the time you know my old lie line about this is um about you know i feel like the guy who um wanted to become both a taxidermist and a veterinarian um that way he could promise uh, uh customers that you'll get your dog back no matter what um and you know it's a it's a high wire thing or at least it makes me nervous and so it was weird. I went into this thing feeling less nervous than I normally would, given that it was essentially a new speech. Um, and then I get up on the podium and I just start sweating like a fat man at an all-you-can-eat pasta bar and um, got a little distracted by it. I don't think the audience noticed. I, I got nothing but nice feedback about it, but it, it didn't. I didn't nail it the way I had planned on in my head. The basic argument, I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds on it because some of it is very familiar to you guys. I, you know, the way you know, at least during COVID now, the way I work out some of these things is by talking to you and talking to guests and, and doing the G file and that kind of thing. And, um, the, the basic argument, you know, so some of you may recall George Will's on here recently and he said, you know, the, the secret to, um, uh, political success is, um, to fight but to be part of a, I think as you put it, a small, compact, idea-driven idea minority. And um, his uh, first example of that was the Federalist Society, which I think is a perfectly good example. And then I sort of jokingly said, and the Bolsheviks. And that's when George said, exactly. Um, you know, I looked it up at the beginning of, in January of 1917, there were um, no more than 24,000 Bolsheviks in a country with 12 time zones. And it didn't matter. And they won. And at the time, I thought that was kind of heartening. But um, the more I thought about it, it's also a little weird that sort of the dean of American conservatism is uh, talking, asking people to, you know, take, take hope and inspiration from the success of the Bolsheviks. And I know what he's getting at, and I'm not really criticizing him. But um, you combine, so you take that idea. And then you combine it with the stuff I've written so much about, about elites, right? And um, specifically, some of you may recall, um, I wrote about uh, Villafredo, Villafredo, Villafredo Pareto, you know, this economist and social theorist and sort of one of the founders of the Italian school of elite theory. And I've written about him a couple of times. And one of the things he came up with, with was the Pareto distribution. And the Pareto distribution is not hard and fast, but it's basically the 80, 20 rule. And it's true. It holds true all over the place. Pareto realized that when you, um, 
that despite all sorts of wars and revolutions and reform campaigns and consolidations and 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 all sorts of you know other uh, sweeping changes on the Italian peninsula, when the dust settles, it's just as a hard, almost a hard rule of history. Um, eighty percent of the land ends up being owned by twenty percent of the people, and he started seeing the same distribution in all sorts of places, including in his own garden, um, where twenty percent of the pea plants uh, produced eighty percent of the peas. And then you start looking around. You can you can Google it. You know, uh, you know examples of Pareto distribution. And you'll get all kinds of them. Eighty percent, twenty percent of factories produce eighty percent of the pollution. 20% of criminals commit 80% of the crimes. Now, I don't think that these, these not, again, I don't think the numbers have to be hard and fast, but I think the general proposition remains the same, which is that, that small you know, numbers of actors, institutions, however you want to put it, um, uh, end up having outsized influence and role. It was George himself who pointed out to me that this was all confirmed by, by Schaefer when they realized that 20% of the beer market drank 80% of the beer, and that's why they came up with the slogan, it's the beer you pour when you're, it, it's the one you ha- pour when you're having more than one. Um, anyway, so I brought up, I, I've written about this Pareto thing before uh, in a couple of G-Files, and specifically to point out that elites are inevitable. Um, uh, George Michael's um, or Michelle's, I said, I'm sorry. He's the guy who came up with the phrase iron law of oligarchy, which um, basically, you know, it sounds really, I should say, you know, like a lot of people think oligarchy means that uh, it means rule by the rich. Oh, the oligarchs, that kind of thing. Um, and it's often true that countries that are ruled by oligarchs, the oligarchs are rich, but the point is that the, the, it's not a uh, oligarchy and plutocracy are not the same necessarily the same thing, even though they often end up being both because it shouldn't surprise you that if only a handful of people are running a country that the handful of those people are going to make themselves rich. But there've been plenty of countries where the getting rich is secondary to them having power, including for example, the United States. I mean, uh, I know they call the U S Senate a millionaires club, but, um, you know, a U.S. Senator has a lot of power. Um, he's not necessarily rich. Sometimes like, and very disturbingly, they get rich over the course of being senators. You know, I think Harry Reid became very rich despite never making very much money on a salary and that's bad, but it, it sort of proves my point anyway. So, you know, the, the iron law of oligarchy, uh, Michelle's, what he did was he studied, he first came up with it when he was studying, um, social democratic parties in Germany. And he basically lays out how all institutions, regardless of how committed they are to democracy, eventually get run by a handful of people. There's nothing sinister about this. And he walks you through why, you know, why, why this is the case. Um, and I'll explain it in a second, but just look in your own lives. I mean, um, there's a, there's a strong Pareto distribution, maybe even more extreme than 80, 20, probably in every church and school in this country in the sense that like the parents who run the bake sales, make sure things happen, plan the parties, um, you know, take attendance, 
uh, corral donations, all that kind of stuff. There's a handful of people who do the lion's share of all of that work. Um, it's usually just a handful of, of really impressive women in my experience. Um, but probably any institution, every, any volunteer institution you worked at in high school or college, yearbook, college newspaper, anything like that, student government, there's only, there's a handful of people who show up and, and do most of the work. And then they beg other people to, to, you know, make an appearance for stuffing envelopes or whatever. That's just sort of natural. And Michelle's are, Michelle's explains that part of the reason for that is that in any organization, someone has to be, uh, in charge of various administrative functions. And when you're in charge of administrative functions, uh, you get access to information that other people do not have of necessity. Like, someone has to handle payroll. Someone has to handle, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, attendance and, and, and the division of responsibilities at any, at any given institution. And the people who are ultimately the decision makers in, for those kinds of things collect naturally information until they have a monopoly on information that gives them more power and they end up actually just sort of, you know, if not running the show completely, then being an indispensable part of the management structure or the rulership structure structure because they have this monopoly on information. And so there's nothing pernicious or sinister inherently into the idea of the iron law of oligarchy. It's just the way human self-sort um, given human nature. I know this is a long way to go for something that I said I wasn't going to talk about much, but just so I can connect all these dots. The other thing I've been talking a lot about. Oh, so anyway, this is my whole point about Ted Cruz, right? You know, where you know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance and these guys, they rail about the elites and they talk about how the elites, you know, it's the people versus the elites. And, you know, we have to, you know, I'm sick of living in a country where the elites control our lives and yada, yada, yada. And, um, you know, and this is part of the point of my speech is that like, you know, Ted Cruz went to Princeton. He's a Harvard trained lawyer. He was a solicitor general of Texas. He's a two term senator who's run for president. Um, his wife is uh, like a managing director of Goldman Sachs. You know, the idea that Ted Cruz is out there, you know, railing against the elites as if he's not one of them is, you know, it's like Warren Buffett railing against rich people. Or as I said in the speech, um, it's like Matt Gates railing against idiots. Um, and so... I think the reason why this is an important thing to point out is that elites are inevitable. That's one of the things that elite theory teaches us, or Italian elite theory teaches us. Elites are inevitable. They are always going to exist. Um, there's nothing terrible about that. We have no problem with that whatsoever in any realm outside of essentially politics and certain aspects of, of the culture, right? You know, we do not mind that there are elite surgeons. We do not mind that there are elite scientists. We do not mind that there are elite lawyers. We expect that some, you know, that merit will lift certain people to the top of their professions and make them the best. We certainly don't, you know, say, oh man, are we really going to have to watch another football game with all those elite players playing? Um, we like the best players. We like watching the very best in their profession do, you know, amazing things and we don't mind it. It's this thing about in politics that it bothers us and for understandable reasons. And, but at the end of the day, uh, 
anytime you hear any prominent person, any sort of political celebrity talking about, you know, how they're against the elites, whether it's Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders or Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, just keep in mind that what we're really talking about is, you know, one set of elites saying that they want to be, have more power and the other set of elites um, should be thrown out of power. And that's natural. doesn't make one side right and the other side wrong. It's just the way it is. And that sort of brings me to this other leg of the stool of the argument I wanted to make, which is simply that um, sort of pinging off of the stuff I talked with Jay Cost about and what Steve Tell is about, about the role of factions. Because another way of saying, instead of George Will's small, compact, idea-driven minorities, um, and, or simply saying elites, is to say factions, right? Factions in the, in the, in the founder's conception. Yeah, factions could include people on the ground, you know, normal voters and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, those factions had elites that were the ones having the arguments and they represented a specific part of a coalition or a faction, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and so I got, I, so I've been thinking about this a lot about how our system of that is supposed to use factions for good is kind of broken. And this gets me to all the stuff I've written about with David Shore. Um, and you know, you know how I like to harp on how stupid Latin X is and birthing person is and, and defund the police is David Shore's whole argument could be understood as basically saying, um, there is a small, compact idea driven minority, AKA a faction that has outsized influence in the democratic party. And the problem is it does not have a corresponding power base among voters, at least not enough voters who matter. Um, and, and this, I think gets to a big chunk of what's wrong with our system is that we have these elite factions that are not actually representing major swaths of the electorate. And they claim they do. They often think they do. You know, obviously the people saying Latin X and, and birthing person and, you know, uh, talking about intersectionality, all this kind of stuff, they think that they're being inclusive. They think that they're speaking for real Americans and the oppressed and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I went and looked at those polls about Latin X, you know, the Pew poll found that 3%, um, of Hispanics uh, use the term and something like 72% of Hispanics had never heard the term. And, um, and outside of that 3% who used it, no one really liked the term. And so you can think you're being inclusive, but you're not right. And that's whole David Shore's whole point is that these, these sort of effete elites, um, are talking amongst themselves as if they're representative of the masses when, in fact, the way they talk about things turns off the masses, literally repels them, according to Shore, in some cases. And I think there's a corresponding problem on the right. It's not symmetrical, but there's a corresponding problem on the right with a certain group, you know, these, these post-liberal integralist types. Um, you know, they think that they're speaking for the masses. They think they've attached themselves to the, you know, the, the vox populi and all that. And in reality, they're having a conversation amongst themselves 
that most even wildly pro-Trump voters have no idea what they're talking about. And, you know, the idea that you're going to get, get elected and then govern in a way that is inspired by the Orban model of Hungary is as almost as stupid as, you know, talking about birthing person stuff. And the point being that this was, this is the whole point of the Madisonian system is that there's nothing wrong with having elites. There's nothing wrong with having factions, but they actually need to represent actual groups on the ground. It's fine to talk about how the Bolsheviks were, um, super successful despite being small. The problem with the Bolshevik model is the Bolsheviks were terrorists. I mean, and, and, and I'm not using the word terrorist, um, you know, promiscuously here. I mean, Lenin wrote at length about the uses of terror. Um, uh, this was, you know, in the tradition of the terror of the French revolution. I mean, they were terrorists and they killed people and they used violence. And like, I'm all, I'm, you don't have to convince me that small groups of people can have, can drive history if they use violence. Um, but the whole point of our system is to take violence off the table and, and in the Madisonian system, the way you actually affect change is by developing arguments, um, as an elite faction, right. But that solve problems for large numbers of real Americans or, or at least persuasive to large numbers of real Americans. And I think in the wake of Yunkin's victory in Virginia, you see what that looks like. It's not all of this esoteric, weird, thumb suckery about, you know, um, you know, uh, post integralism or nationalism, nor is it about, you know, intersectionality, all this kind of stuff. It's, it's like stuff suburbanites, you know, understand and the black voters understand, you know, the Yunkin and Winsome Sears talked a lot about fully funding historically black colleges and, you know, and they talk about getting rid of the grocery tax and, uh, you know, this is the stuff that actually connects with people is because it's normal. And this is, I think the problem we have in big chunk of this country is that the, the sort of Fox OAN Newsmax addicted, um, you know, uh, talkers have, um, convinced themselves that, um, the normals aren't their audience anymore. And, um, and so have the MSNBC, CNN, um, you know, sort of woke crowd, they think, uh, the normals aren't their audience anymore, or they've convinced themselves that what their, their real audience are the normals when that would be a shock to most Americans. And so both of these elite factions, which are dominating big chunks of the two, um, major parties are actually disconnected with where the voters are. And this ties into all that third party stuff we talked about. It ties into the Steve Tellis stuff and all the stuff that, 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 that Jay Cost was talking about, because at the end of the day, what you want, the reason why in this country, and this was a really important point I thought that Jay made in this country, we have elections constantly. I mean, just constantly. And you know, the, the whole flight 93 thing of talking about how this next election may be our last is so deeply poisonous when in reality, the system that Madison and the founders set up is one of getting constant feedback from voters, which is more important than polling. I mean, this is something that, you know, I, I, I 
I also wrote about recently where the polling, I feel like I'm just doing, you know, this is the sum up of the G file and the remnant for the last two months. But so I'll move on to new stuff in a second. But, you know, polling captures what people say they believe. And I'm not trying to denigrate that. That's fine. But it captures what they say they believe. It captures what they want, um, what they think they're supposed to say. It doesn't really capture intensity very much. Um, you know, and I ran through these numbers, you know, a couple of weeks ago where if you even asked Bernie Sanders supporters what they um, were, we be willing to pay out of their own pockets for, for free healthcare and free college tuition. And it's amazing how even the socialists are pretty greedy, um, you know, and all of this talk about how the provisions of the Build Back Better bill are incredibly popular with the American people. All of those claims are based upon polls that say other people are going to pay for it, that these things are all free for them because we're going to soak uh, the wealthy to pay for all these things. When you actually ask, and Brian Riedel's, you know, pointed me to a lot of this polling after he was on you know, the podcast, but if you look at the, um, you know, if, if you ask Americans whether they want to spend, whether they would spend another $10 a month or $2 a month in some cases uh, to fight climate change, they say no. You know, so it, like polling doesn't actually, particularly when you, when you rig the polling to make it seem like you have more popular support than you do, it really doesn't capture intensity. Voting captures intensity. Voting gets, you know, the people who show up just sort of like if you're doing, you know, student government in high school or college or yearbook or whatever, the people who show up are the ones who are committed. It's very easy for everybody to say, yeah, I'm part of the yearbook staff and never, and never show up. It's the people who show up and do the work that um, are, are the real indication of support. And that's what voting is for. And we have elections here constantly that are telling politicians where Americans are. And, um, and I think the Yunkin results, never mind the stuff in Seattle, the stuff in New Jersey, you know, this was a sign that a lot of Democrats are, um, have been listening to a lot of woke nonsense, which is something like I say, like James Carville has been saying this for a while. Even Al Sharpton has been saying this for a while. Last Friday, um, the New York times did an unsigned, you know, a real editorial chastising the Democrats for moving too far to the left. You know, I mean, that's, that's a sign of the apocalypse in my background, you know, in my, in my childhood. And it does, I think it takes an enormous amount of chutzpah for the New York times to be all of a sudden saying, you know, what's wrong with you Democrats moving so far to the left when the New York times has been hectoring the country to move to the left on all sorts of hot button cultural issues for the longest time. And, you know, and now they're like, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, you know, saying why, you know, why is the monster, you know, pillaging in the village? You know, this wasn't our idea. Um, so just to sort of fin up, finish up the argument that I was making, um, the, you take all this stuff, elites are inevitable. Elites are just another way of saying the sort of the tip of the iceberg of factions. Factions are just, you know, legitimate, uh, perspectives and, 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 and self-interests, um, or interest groups or whatever you want to call them, uh, that make up a democracy, um, that, 
if you're not connected to, if you're not meaningfully connected to a significant chunk of voters, um, you might as well be a Dungeons and Dragons club, um, which is what we get with a lot of this nonsense on the left and the right these days. Um, and that, you know, George is absolutely right. That small, compact, idea-driven minorities change the world. But what that leaves out is that even for, for that observation, there's an enormous Pareto distribution. Because for every successful, small, ideologically driven minority um, that succeeds, there's four that fail. Because it turns out it's an 80-20 kind of rule. And so four out of five times, like four out of five dentists, you know, recommending, um, what, what's the gum trident? Um, the, it's fine to bet on small, compact idea driven minorities to change the world, but they're only going to really, if you're, if, if violence isn't an option, the only way they're going to succeed is by you know, staying somewhat tethered to where the American people are and what the American people want. And I was talking to Ramesh while I was preparing for the speech, and, you know, and he just gave a really good pithy example um, of all this. You know, in the 1970s, there were long gas lines and, um, and inflation. And the American people wanted to get rid of long gas lines and inflation. And they were screaming, get rid of these things. They weren't screaming, um, you know, decontrol oil prices or tighten the money supply because that was the technique to do those things. They just wanted the results. And it, it took conservatives of a certain stripe to make the arg- elites of a certain stripe to make the arguments and connect them to the solutions in a way that was successful both as a governing matter, but also as an electoral matter. And that's what, you know, these, you know, these facts, these elites need to do to be successful. And, and sometimes elites I do not like will be successful and they will get things done that I do not like. But again, there's always going to be another election. You know, the, the progressives, they got prohibition. And it lasted for a while. And then Americans were like, screw this. I want my whiskey. And prohibition ended. Um, but the only way any of these things become permanent and irrevocable is if you stop fighting against them. The pro-life movement has not given up on overturning Roe, which is why Roe still may get overturned. But, you know, no one's fighting gay marriage anymore. That's fine by me. I'm not, this is not, I'm not advocating that it should, but like, you know, this is the T.S. Eliot point. You know, there's no such thing as a truly lost cause because there's no such thing as a truly won cause. The only way a cause truly wins is if the other side stops fighting against it and um, and stops the hard work of trying to persuade voters that maybe we took a wrong turn somewhere. And so this I this there's this this disgusting and depressing fatalism that goes into all of this talk about this is the most important election ever, or we have one election left before the end of the world. And there'll be no turning back. If our side loses this election, what people are basically saying is I'm going to give up if I lose this election. And first of all, you know, most of them aren't going to give up because this is their business model is to keep fighting. But second of all, um, it, 
makes it sound like there's no turning back and there is turning back so long as people of goodwill are, are willing to, to, to keep going. Um, all right. So anyway, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I did not plan on doing all of that for so long and I apologize, but there you have it. Um, what else to talk about? Uh, there's the Kyle Rittenhouse stuff. So, um, how to talk about this. I took this pew, we'll put it in the show notes, this pew typology, political typology thing where, you know, you answer like 16 questions or 18 questions. And then it tells you where you are, um, on the political spectrum. And, um, I took it twice. Uh, both times I came out as a member of the ambivalent, right? Which if the responses on Twitter are correct, uh, that is where most self-described members of the remnant are for all sorts of obvious reasons. But, um, I hated the questions because they were, they, they forced these really weird binaries on me where I either half agreed or half disagreed with both options, half, you know, most of the time. And I'm not going to get into all the details about it, but I mean, you can go check it out. It was, it, it really annoyed me in the way it framed this stuff. And, um, and the reason this comes to mind is like just this morning I saw on MSNBC, a reporter for the Rittenhouse trial talking about, um, how, you know, this case is dividing people between those who think this was a man, you know, this was a kid who went out to murder people and is a criminal and blah, 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 bad man, white supremacist, all that stuff. And between people who think he's a patriot and a hero. And frankly, I just, you know, I don't know. I don't have had a conversation with anybody personally. I've seen people, I've seen idiots all over the place on social media saying that kind of stuff. But, and, and on TV, but I, I honestly, I don't know anybody personally who subscribes to either caricature about, about this kid. Um, you know, my position is he did something incredibly stupid. He, he violated, you know, one of the oldest maxims of, of the, of the Goldberg view of, of personal behavior, which is, um, don't go looking for trouble. And if you find it, don't complain that you found it. Right. I mean, the kid took across state lines, um, you know, a big ass gun. I don't want to get into trouble with weapon nomenclature aficionados, but it was a big gun. He was a teenager. He took it. He went to a place where people were rioting to do something to feel like a man to, to whatever. Um, it was really dumb. And for all of the people out there saying, you know, I, which I doubt are many in, in my listenership, but um, for all the people out there saying, you know, what he did was heroic and, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, just ask yourself if your 16 or 17 year old kid asked you, hey, dad or hey, mom, can I take the gun and drive for, you know, six hours to where they're rioting and go running around playing soldier? or playing hero, what, what would your answer be? You know? Um, and, uh, if your answer is, you know, I'll, I'll pay for your gas, son. Well, then we just see the world differently. Um, so I think what he did was dumb. I think he was looking for trouble, but I also don't think he's, you know, a guy looking to murder people necessarily. I don't, I don't, I think he's 
much more guilty of idiocy than he is of like obvious villainy. And, um, and the people who are saying that the simple fact that he brought a gun to this thing, um, is proof that, you know, of, of the most serious charges against him, you gotta be careful with some of that stuff because, you know, the, there are people who bring guns to go protect synagogues and churches from terror threats. There are people who cross state lines to, with guns to, you know, uh, um, protect causes that, you know, left-wingers care passionately about. And the idea that is just a blanket, you know, form of uh, proof of guilt is a very dangerous one. And it's certainly not how the rule of law works. And so, uh, again, I haven't followed it super closely. I'm inclined to think the crying was real. Um, I'm inclined to think that the prosecution has screwed this thing up pretty badly. Um, I think, again, I, I, again, I haven't followed that closely. I think that the gun charges, it's very hard to see how he doesn't get slapped for that. But the idea that he like is, is, is guilty of premeditated murder, I, I just don't see it. And, um, so I don't think he's a great patriot and I don't think he is like a psychopathic murderer. I think he was an idiot teenager who got spun up by a lot of people that we know, um, uh, to go do something stupid and it needs to be just sort of said, or at least I think it needs to be, or at least let me put it this way. I feel the need to say it, that the rioters were looking for trouble too. If you're out there setting fire to stuff and smashing windows and pulling people out of cars and beating them up and all that kind of stuff, and then some really bad karma comes back on you, I'm not saying this Rosenbaum guy or anybody deserved to die. I don't want anybody to get killed in any of this stuff, but you shouldn't riot. You shouldn't set fire to people's property. You shouldn't, you know, act as a public menace and if you end up in a bad situation acting like a public menace, I'm just going to have less sympathy for you than somebody, you know, than some guy trying to protect his grocery store from being burnt to the ground. That's the kind of people I have huge amounts of sympathy for, not the people with the Molotov cocktails. And so I have, you know, I, have, I just have a sort of a pox on all your houses attitude to a lot of this stuff. I think the media coverage of the trial, particularly the CNN stuff I've seen about the judge, is embarrassingly stupid. Um, you can tell that people want to blame this all on the judge rather than on the prosecutors. And I, I just think it's all BS. Um, what else? Oh, so, um, um, Ryan, when we were, before we were recording, suggested this, um, Nicole Hannah Jones, uh, that's her name, right? Nicole Hannah Jones. Um, she had a, uh, Really, I mean, she she tweets a lot of of. I want to use correct terms here and not get in any trouble. Stupid things, and um, she tweeted this thing about. Let me see, I meant to look it up beforehand. Um, anyway, I'll paraphrase. I can't find it here, but she 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 tweeted that about Hiroshima that we dropped the bomb because we knew the Japanese were about to surrender. And we spent so much money on it, we really wanted to use it. And the thing is, um, actually, no, you know, I, I, Ryan sent it to me, so I can just 
called up. Yeah, yeah. So she got into some fight um, with somebody, um, and she said, because she said she feels ashamed of America about Hiroshima and all that. And she says, in response to somebody criticizing her, she says, "You're the one who poorly understands history. They dropped the bomb when they knew surrender was coming." If they'd spent all this money developing it and to prove it was worth it. Propaganda is not history, my friend. And the thing is, this isn't even good propaganda from her. This is like, 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 got to remember, the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were sources of Soviet-backed propaganda um, and revisionist left-wing historian, you know, you know, nonsense in this country. For a half century, there was, I mean, there was, it was good with footnotes and they had all sorts of like complex and serious arguments. This is just no nothingism, you know, amped to 11. I am not aware, like, this is not like the primary argument from even modestly good faced left wing uh, critics of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In fact, like the the better arguments I always thought were that while Hiroshima was justified or arguably justified, Nagasaki wasn't, and we could have waited longer before dropping the second one. But I'm not gonna get deep in the weeds on this. I'm just gonna say, look, there are there are legitimate arguments. I've had colleagues at National Review who are on both sides of of this question about whether we should be, you know, whether it was the right decision or not. Um and there are smart takes and there are dumb takes and all this kind of stuff. And this is just a dumb take. Um, the, and the reason she, someone, someone actually called this the 1945 project because, uh, Hannah, Nicole, Hannah Jones is, you know, the author of the, was the principal author of, um, the 1619 project. Um, and it just sort of shows where she's coming from. um, ideologically on all of this stuff um but the you know the 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 factors that went into the bombing were deeply complex and they had you know they had everything to do with the fact that russia was going to get in soon um you know because they they agreed to um join the fight against japan but japan was trying to form a separate peace with russia that was a variable you know harry truman you know, who did not come up with the unconditional surrender strategy. Um, that was set by FDR, I think in like 43. And he was inspired by Lincoln's argument for unconditional surrender in the civil war. And part of this gets into the context of the first world war where, you know, the reason we had a second world war people believed at the time was that we didn't have a proper clean victory in the first world war and the lack of an unconditional surrender and then all the weird reparation stuff and and all the rest it it created the condition the preconditions for the second world war and this was a you know gotta remember this is a generation that had now seen two really gross horrible world wars and they're like i'm done with this and particularly harry truman who you know i, I remember what was it? Dan McLaughlin writing about this a few years ago. Um, you know, Harry Truman was in the second bloodiest battle in all of U.S. history. Um, was it the Argonne Forest or whatever? Um, 
he saw war up close and personal and hated it. And so for him, the idea of ending a war with real finality and real closure was very attractive. Um, and then there's all the stuff about, you know, it, it can get, there are good counterpoints and counterpoints. The militarists who dominated the Japanese cabinet were, um, you know, they weren't, they didn't think that they could necessarily win the war, but they thought that they could basically fight long enough to make it, um, an open wound for America until we just lost will to keep going. And that required, you know, defending the homeland fanatically, which was an easy thing for them to imagine because Japan had no tradition of surrender in war and had no real conception of it. And they were very, very, very concerned about, um, if they agreed to unconditional surrender that they would try, the emperor would be tried as a war criminal, which, you know, attacking or killing the emperor or making him step down would, you know, in effect, you know, from the Japanese perspective, seemed like negating the reason for the existence of the country. You know, I, I, you know, people have compared it to like us losing a war and someone saying, okay, well, you have to get rid of your constitution. It's just like the Japanese nation state was conceived under the rubric of the emperor and um and they thought that there was a real risk that the nation would be if not physically destroyed then then conceptually destroyed if they went after the emperor and americans knew this um we knew this for a whole bunch of different reasons you know we paid attention we decoded their stuff um and we also knew that you know the Japanese had a tolerance for casualty rates that was greater than any other country that in 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 human and maybe in arguably in human history. And so you start doing the math of what it is like to actually take the homeland in a conventional invasion, and yuck, right? And so you, you, again, I could probably do, we could probably do a four part podcast on this and i get we did a little bit of this with with chris wallace but um this was a complicated decision that truman thought was a fairly easy decision um and that doesn't mean that complicated decisions can't be easy it just means that you just have a lot of confidence in where you're coming from but it is it is really just a horrible slander to say that this is, you know, Truman did it because we spent a lot of money on it. He wasn't invested in the freaking nuclear program. He didn't find out about it until after FDR died. Um, you know, and it was his decision. Um, I mean, I, Jones just literally doesn't know what she's talking about, which is shouldn't be shocking, but it does offend me pretty badly sometimes. All right, so uh, I guess a little quick punditry. Um, so I, you know, I've been thinking about, and I was talking with a lot of people about this over the last week about, because, you know, when you go and you have, you know, you have dinner with people after a speech, which I did, which was a lot of fun, you know, and people want to talk to you about presidential politics, particularly in the wake of, of the Virginia stuff. And um, I'm increasingly of the mind that the way you get, um, Trump not to 
run is you need um, a bunch of top-tier Republicans who want to be president to announce that they're going to run regardless of whether Trump runs. Um, I saw an item, Jonathan Carl has in his book, that I think it's in Jonathan Carl's book, I I saw something this morning, um, that Trump is telling people, which doesn't mean it's true, that um, that um, DeSantis has told him he won't run if Trump runs. And Trump apparently wants DeSantis to say it publicly, and DeSantis hasn't. And I think this is a, sort of a good illustration of the point. First of all, forget you know the actual Trump aspects of it for two seconds. Um, if you really think you're the best guy to be president and you want to communicate that you're you know, not going to be intimidated, um, you should probably tell the world that you're not going to let Trump intimidate you out of voting. I mean, out of running. Um, it is, there's something sort of, uh, Dave Drucker was talking about this a little bit. There's something just sort of unpresidential about saying, uh, well, I'm not going to do it if Trump does it. Um, you know, if you think you're the best person for the job, if you think you've got the forward agenda, if you think, um, you know, you have something specific to offer that the other candidates don't, uh, kowtowing to Trump just makes you look weak. And, you know, I, I kind of suspect that cotton will run no matter what. I think Pompeo is wrestling with this mightily, but my hunches is he runs no matter what. I mean, you don't lose as much weight as he's lost, um, for nothing. Um, I think that, uh, um, and that, you know, I think DeSantis is why, you know, DeSantis can't really announce that he's going to run no matter what, because he wants to get reelected governor first. Um, so at least he has an excuse. But I think Nikki Haley, and again, you know, my wife worked Nikki Haley. I personally like Nikki Haley, but I think she's handled her time out of office quite poorly. Uh, you know, she should, um, she should never have said she wouldn't run if Trump ran. Also, I think it was, this is not really on point, but I thought it was really interesting. You know, she had this interview last week, I think, where she says that presidents should have a, um, at their past a certain age, they should take a cognitive aptitude test or something like that. Um, and a lot of people, and, and then she got in a lot of trouble because she also said in the interview, or she got a lot of grief because she also said in the interview, just sort of like you have to pa- you release your tax returns, there ought to be a law saying that you have to take one of these tests. And the problem is, of course, that the president that she worked for never released his tax returns, despite promising that he would. Um, I have come around to thinking it should probably be a law or at least um, a law within the parties that you can't get the nomination without releasing your tax returns. Um, but that's neither here nor there. The interesting thing was that a lot of people, um, initially took this as a grotesque, unfair and unseemly swipe at Joe Biden and his alleged, you know, cognitive failings and whatnot. And I'm sure that part of the strategy going into saying this was that her base would hear it that way, or the Republican base would hear it that way. Um, but in a lot of ways, it felt to me like she's trying to come up with um, a new rationale for 
going after Trump um, come 2024. And um, it's, if she is, it's, I think it's a little too clever by half, but like even the, I mean, like like Nikki knows that Trump didn't release his tax returns. Um, But saying it that way gives her a little sort of plausible deniability that she was talking about Trump um, while at the same time adding some ammo to the idea of actually going after Trump come, (coughs) come 2024. I don't know. It's just a theory. Regardless, um, the reason why they should all announce that they're running regardless is that Trump really doesn't want to have to run a real campaign against Republicans. He wants a coronation, right? Part of his whole, part of the psychological superstructure of all of this nonsense about, you know, him, having the election stolen from him it's partly so that he can lay the groundwork for claiming that he's just simply entitled to the job again because it was stolen from him last time and he doesn't want to do the work to get it the normal way and you know look he's he's a bully and if everybody sort of stands up and says you had your shot um, you're too focused on the 2020 election. You're not focused on, you know, on America and what America needs right now and going forward. Um, we need fresh blood besides you're going to be old and whatever. I mean, you don't have to say it exactly these ways, but that's those, that's the underlying message. Um, you know, it's time for someone new, uh, that makes it less likely for him to get in. And, um, I think doing it more in a Yunkin way than, you know, the way I would like, you know, then let's put it this way, doing it more in a Yunkin way than a Liz Cheney way would make a lot of sense. Cause what you don't want to do is trigger him to be furious at people improve, you know, and, and get in out of vengeance and spite, but you do want to sort of intimidate him. And, and let me be clear. I think everyone knows how I feel about Trump. I think he's a terrible person, a man of terrible character. I think he did enormous damage to the country and to conservatism. Um, um, but as bad and, but he, there's also lost lots of good things that happened during his presidency, but as, as bad as I think he was doing the job. And I really do think he was very bad at the job and, you know, people, you know, they steal a lot of bases when they talk about how, well, he got all these things done. It's a more complicated story than that, but we're not going to get into the weeds there. Let just suffice it to say, a Trump second term would be disastrous, disastrous. Because first of all, what are the lessons he's learned? First of all, he's learned the lesson that, um, uh, you know, conventional, qualified, conservative legal movement approved Supreme Court justices are no good to him. They can't be relied on to return his quote unquote loyalty. He thinks William Barr was a traitorous hack and sort of rhino squish who, but you know, who betrayed him by refusing to go along with the stolen election stuff. Um, you know, the people that he would surround himself with would make Mark Meadows seem like a man of conviction. Um, it would be, it would be the, the Jason Millers, the Steve Millers, um, who knows 
you know, what kind, you know, Judge Janine for the Supreme Court. This is not to say it all get passed or approved by the Senate, but um, he would fill the government with people who had made total peace with the kind of presidency Trump wanted to have in the first place. You know, the all the talk about the circuit breakers and the grown-ups and the people who checked Trump, whether whether you like them individually or not, you know, the Mattises, even the Pen like it look, even Pence supposedly betrayed him because he refused to go along with the the plan to steal the election. So Trump is gonna pick, you know, Renfields and other sycophants and remoras and suckerfish. Um to fill that administration if he were reelected. Um, and there'd be no checks on him because, you know, he's, you'd be going in at the age 78. He would empower the very worst people in the Republican Party to feel like it's their party. Um, and it would just be utterly, utterly disastrous for the country, for the GOP, and for conservatism. And so even if you liked his first term, and even if you, um, hate the prospect of a Democrat getting elected in 2024, which I think is completely understandable. It seems to me that you should be more concerned about making sure that the Republican Party has somebody like, like a Glenn Youngkin under their banner, you know, somebody who's actually part of a more mainstream, reasonable, normie, elite faction who cares about representing the the interests and concerns of normal Americans. Um, I, personally, I like people who are interested in representing the concerns of, you know, middle-class bourgeois families that want to do um, right by their kids, that want their kids to be taught all the aspects of American history, all that kind of stuff, but also not, but also be taught that, that this is a country that they should love. Um, I think those things are possible to do. I think we've done that pretty well in the past. Um, and that believes in playing by the rules and, and entrepreneurship and limited government and all these kinds of things. The sort of ambivalent right that I am part of, if, you know, I, I honestly think that, that someone from that kind of perspective running for president who could sort of pull off the Yunkin two-step of keeping the, the, the more Trump enthusiastic crowd happy while at the same time not scaring suburbanites could make joe biden a one-term president and i think that would probably be good for the country if it was that kind of republican who did it um and uh and part of what's required to do that is to show some courage and some integrity and to stand up to to trump and his crowd and not be intimidated by them and right now you just don't see a lot of that among republicans but that's the that's the cure for what ails the party and and the right. And similarly, I you know it's kind of amazing, despite all the damage that the Trump captivity has done to the Republican Party, the, the Republican bench has a lot more people capable of that kind of campaign than the Democratic bench does. I mean, there's like what there's like Joe Manchin right now, um, and I honestly think that a Bill Clinton style, uh, maybe without you know all of the barren and milkmaid routines with the interns, but a sort of, you know, a, 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 a Mitch Daniels of the left, um, by which I mean, technocratics, smart, generally attuned with middle-class values and is not too extreme, 
you know, sort of guy whose favorite columnist is William Galston of the Wall Street Journal or something like that. Um, if the Democrats had some of those kinds of guys, and maybe this guy Tim Ryan in Ohio is that guy, but if they had more of those kinds of of people um, on their bench, that would be, you know, I think that kind of normie Democrat could also um, run away with it, particularly if the Democrat, if the Republicans put up, um, you know, tr- certainly Trump again, you know, uh, but even someone sort of Trump-like. And this is something I think a lot of people haven't really, and I'll just close with this, haven't really focused on quite yet, which is that, you know, people voted for Biden to a large extent, not the only extent, right? But a large number of them voted for Biden because they wanted this return to normalcy thing, right? They were sick of the drama. Well, it turns out that, and we can have an argument about this another time, fairly or unfairly, whether it's because of Biden's incompetence or because of external events he had no control over or the, you know, you pick your poison about why it's happening. But the simple fact is runaway inflation tends to make people feel like they live in chaotic times. That's just a fact. Um, the supply chain stuff, COVID, um, Afghanistan, um, this doesn't feel like the normalcy we were promised, right? You know, people, People are sort of like Steve Martin and the jerk saying, there are snails on the plate. Bring me these toasted cheese sandwiches. Bring me those toasted cheese sandwiches you talk me out of. They want normalcy. They want calm. They want quiet, competent government. And, um, you know, Amy Walter, who I, who I love, she makes the case that, this, that, that Biden's low approval is almost entirely because of the perceived sense of incompetence. I think she's obviously got a point. She's crazy, wicked smart. Um, but I do think the ideological stuff matters too, but I think you can square those circles because the mere fact that everybody's freaking out about the ideological stuff, critical race theory, yada, 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 is itself a sign that Biden does not have a handle on the political moment well enough to calm people down and reassure people. And, um, and that goes to competence as well. So anyway, this idea that there's going to be a lot of, you know, that, that, that Biden's failed presidency, which right now I honestly think it's shaping up to be failed. It's early yet. Things can get better. They just passed the infrastructure thing, yada, yada, yada. Um, so it might all get better, but as of right now, I would bet on a major shellacking in the midterms and um, and who knows about the economy come 23, 24, who knows about Biden's own health come 23, 24, but regardless, as of right now, it is, it is on, on path towards a failed presidency. And there are a lot of people, particularly Trump boosters who are talking about how this will create Trump nostalgia that people will, you know, want to go back to Trump because things were at least better under Trump back then. Obviously, some people will believe that and feel that, and that will be true of some people because it's true of some people now. It was true of some people on November 8th. Um, But I don't think a lot of people are focusing on the fact that it won't be four years of chaos for a lot of people. You know, it won't be four years of things going off the rails um, under the Biden years. It will be eight. Because the Trump-Biden years will be eight years of just constant turmoil and 
um, politics being too important and too annoying and too intrusive in people's lives. And so you could have the ultimate irony is that the candidate who successfully becomes president or becomes the nominee on either in either party could be the normalcy candidate, right? Because Biden didn't live, live up to the normalcy product promise. People will want normalcy more, not less after four years of Biden and four years of Trump. And, um, you know, if I don't, I, I honestly don't know who that Democrat is right now. Um, because first of all, they would have to emerge. Second of all, they would actually, if, if Biden, you know, the idea that the challenge is sitting president, which is a big deal, particularly in the democratic party. Um, or Biden would have to announce he's not running. And then whoever that normie is would be seen as stealing the presidency from the first, you know, African-American female democratic candidate for president. And, you know, who's currently the vice president. And that could, you know, that could tear the democratic party apart. Who knows? I mean, we're pretty far out there, but my only point is, is that Biden could be laying the groundwork, not necessarily for the return of Trump, but for, um, someone to successfully run explicitly on competence and competence and normalcy, um, rather than just implicitly the way Biden did and be in a position to, you know, to really fundamentally change our politics if they could actually deliver on it. So anyway, all right, I'm done. Um, um, feel much better physically. I have no idea if, if this conversation I just had with you guys is of any use whatsoever. Um, but, um, it was great to meet so many people out there who say they listen to the remnant. A lot of you listen to the remnant on Saturdays while you're running, which I just find weird. Um, in part because I find running so weird, but, uh, watch out for that hydrant. And, um, um, but thank you for all the kind words. Thank you for the support when I wasn't feeling too well. I'm sorry to be cryptic about some of the things going on behind the scenes, but you know, I have to make every, um, I have to take every precaution possible that they don't find the body and, um, uh, and thanks for listening and I'll, I'll see you next time. Yeah.